Hey, Fresh Capital listeners. Today, Albert and I are talking about Nintendo, one of the iconic video gaming consoles and companies of the 21st century. If you listen to our spaceship episode with Phoebe Jin, we've touched on the developer and video game publisher side of the video game industry. But in this episode, we're going deep on the competition between Nintendo, Sony PlayStation, and Microsoft Xbox. You wouldn't know it from the outside, but each of the three biggest consoles have unique business models and strategies for the future. Even if you're not a gamer, this is super interesting. Keep listening to find out. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan, and joining me as always is Albert. Albert, how are you going? Dan, going good. You know, again this week, been drinking my uh, my carrot juice first thing in the morning, so feeling pretty good. <laughs> Had my, my first dose of my COVID vaccine this week as well, so feeling pretty good about that. How are you? Amazing, amazing. I'm set to have my COVID vaccine, Pfizer, next week. Um, so looking forward to it. Hopefully no big side effects, but uh, we'll see. You haven't had too much of a side effect? Uh, a, a bit. So I also had the um, the Pfizer jab and, you know, I, I felt a bit groggy afterwards. But uh, aside from that, you know, nothing particularly major. I, I did note that, like, as I was, I walked out of the um, the hospital where I got the jab, I had 3G, not 4G, not 5G. So I feel like maybe I got a, a bad dose of uh, the vaccine. Got to be careful there, Albert. We might uh, <laughs> alienate some of our listeners. It's a jerk. It's a jerk. It's a 5G jerk. Maybe you can cut that out. <laughs> um, I'm actually really excited today. We're talking about a company which um, I'm a customer of. I was a customer since I was... I don't know how old. I think I would have been about six or seven, maybe. Uh, we're talking about Nintendo. Um, Nintendo started its video game console business in 1983. And then I think what it's widely known for, for people of our age, Albert, uh, launched the Game Boy in 1989, sort of the first really big mobile gaming console. And then, you know, phones happened and, you know, the rest might have been history. But Nintendo's still going really, really strong. They not only make game consoles, they also have world-renowned IP like Super Mario, Pokemon, Zelda. Um, they also have a card game sort of business segment as part of their, their group. They're operating across the world, but you know, predominantly in Japan. They're listed in Japan. Where do you want to go first when talking about Nintendo, Albert? Nice. This is a really good overview, Dan. Also, likewise, very excited. Nintendo played a huge part of my childhood. You know, still does. I have a, a Nintendo Switch. You know, play it for maybe half an hour before bed most nights. Um, I guess where I want to go is probably start to dive into Nintendo's hardware business. You know, that's the majority of what Nintendo does is um, they produce both a gaming console and games to go with it. Uh, as well as kind of license out, you know, technology that enables uh, other third-party game manufacturers to build design games for Nintendo's platform. 
Uh, so at the moment, uh, Nintendo has, uh, I guess, one main console, but different variations of that console. Um, at the moment, they've got what they call the Nintendo Switch. This is a combination of a handheld device that can also be used. Uh, I don't know what the, the right word is. As a traditional gaming console that plugs into a computer. So previously, or display, sorry. Previously, you gen- generally have two types of gaming consoles. The first is a handheld console, and that's one you just, you know, you can take with you, Dan, like the traditional Game Boy. Uh, you can play it on the bus. You can play it in bed. And then you've got probably the more, um, you know, display-connected model that you have to plug into a computer or a display. The difference between the two is the handheld console has a built-in display, whereas a traditional console doesn't have a built-in display, which means you've got to connect it to one in order to play it. Nintendo have got this new hybrid Switch, which is both a traditional console that you can plug into a display and has a built-in display, kind of variations of that, and sold about 90 million of these uh, Switch units um, since it launched in 2017. And it's got a couple of variations. The first is the regular Nintendo Switch that came out in 2017. The Switch Lite, which is just a, a console a handheld console, so you can't plug it into a computer or a display. And then they've got the Switch OLED, which is like an updated version of the Switch, which has, you know, a premium display, better graphics, and higher performance. That's a really good overview, and I'm glad you sort of mentioned the product range, which the Switch has, because that's going to really center our discussion on the video game the console video game industry. So, you know, off the top, before we started recording, we sort of threw out, we're not going to talk much about your Fortnites, your Riot games, your Activision Blizzards, you know, your computer games, the games you might play on your phone. We do talk about that on our episode with with Phoebe Jin from Spaceship a couple of weeks ago. So if you want to check that out, have a listen there. The reason we're segmenting it off is because the business model is really, really different. And this business model comes, I think, famously from Gillette razors, where forgive forgive everyone out there who doesn't shave with, with men's razors, but the general idea was like you go in a store, you you buy a Gillette razor, it's pretty cheap. Like you get the little sort of stick thing, um, plus a razor, and it's like fifteen bucks, for instance. But then once your razor wears out and you have to buy a new one, you have to buy like a pack for like I don't know, 20, 30 bucks. Like they're very steeply priced, but you sort of force that way because you've already got the stick and it can only connect to the razors which Gillette sells. Same issue of toothbrushes. I recently bought an electric toothbrush. Mm, uh, must be and nice. now those little heads. Electric toothbrush. The, li- <laughs> the little heads that go on top are so expensive, but they've got me stuck as a customer because I've already bought you know, the hardware of their product and now I have to keep coming back to them for the little extras. It's the exact same model for the video game console industry. PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, they all sell the console, as you're describing, Albert. And then once you have the console, you have access to their library of games. And each of these companies you know, don't make much money off selling the console. They make the money off the games which they on-sell you through the lifetime of having that unit. So some some data to back all this up. PS4 has sold about 115 million lifetime units. The Switch, as you're saying, Albert, 
comes in at about 90 million. Xbox One, 50 million. So already got a hierarchy. PlayStation's about 45% market share. The Switch, about a third. And Xbox at about 20%. What we've got is now an update where last year the PlayStation 5 launched and the Xbox Series X launched. But the Switch hasn't been updated yet. So a lot of analysts are waiting for when that next console upgrade is going to be. And the interesting thing is like there's there's data out there about how many games you can expect for each console. And for the Switch, at least based on the data from the Nintendo Wii, it's expected that there'll be about eight games sold to a customer for every you know console that they purchase. And so they expect that there's probably another game or two left for people to purchase on their current Switch before Nintendo's looking to upgrade the console just to maximize the sort of monetization of that particular product. And for you know the, the smart listeners out there, what you would recognize is like this makes it a very cyclical industry. Like the best years of these companies are about year two, three into the product cycle. Whereas like the switch is coming to the end of its life cycle while PlayStation Xbox are just at the start of their new product. So there's, you know, a little bit of cyclical uh, effects happening at the moment. Mm. Yeah, nice. That's some really good insight, Dan. I think uh, what I what I really like about this hardware play uh, and where I kind of distinguish it from toothbrushes and razors uh, is that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. So you you can... If you, uh, and this is kind of ironic because we both have beards and probably haven't used a razor in a, <laughs> in a while, <laughs> so using that comparison is uh, probably a bit strange, but if you buy a toothbrush, you're not going to buy another toothbrush. Like, you, you know, you've now got that other toothbrush. Like if you've got a Colgate toothbrush or an Oral-B toothbrush, you know, you're going you're gonna to have a, a side toothbrush that you use every now and then when you want to use a particular type of head. And that's not the case with gaming consoles. You know, there is an intersection of, um, customers who use multiple gaming consoles, uh, such as you know they might own a PlayStation and Nintendo, or they might they might have an Xbox and uh, a Switch or or whatever. Maybe maybe they have a Switch and PC, which is I think one of the more common um, the more common combinations. Given that there's a lot of uh, IP released on PlayStation and Xbox, but not Nintendo. I think this is probably where we can start to pivot this conversation into gaming consoles. Are just a medium to which you can play IP. I think where people go now is that they care less about what the actual gaming console is and about the specs and the hardware and everything attached to that as a piece of hardware, but more about what is the IP available that I can use this console to play. And my the reason for that hypothesis of mine is because IP is so freely available now in terms of gaming content and just content generally, people are becoming more selective as to what they choose to use and play. So let me dial that back because um, I just use IP. It, when I talk about IP in this episode or when we talk about it, we're really talking about the games on um, these gaming consoles. It's like you talked about Pokemon and Zelda and Super Mario. When we talk about IP, that's what we refer to. Yeah, so intellectual property... And it's the same as conversations we've had about Netflix against, you know, the Hulus, the Amazon Primes, the Disney Pluses of the world. I think we've got a fairly set view that content is king and what's going to 
drive customers to these platforms, or in this case, consoles, is going to be the quality of the content or IP, Albert, that they have. And this is where Nintendo does distinguish themselves, like, excessively from the competition. Um, Of their 27 Switch games that have sold more than a million copies, 18 are developed in-house by Nintendo. And to put that in perspective, probably need to step back and have a look at sort of the traditional video game marketplace. But so Sony and Xbox, who have their consoles, the larger proportion of their games are made by private developers. So you'd have, you know, a Call of Duty or something like that, which is made by a separate developer. And then they provide that to Sony and Xbox to be published through their their game libraries and then playable on their gaming consoles. There's just lower margins of that because obviously the gaming developer wants a cut of of the profits, Mm. a sizable cut to make it worth their while. Mm. Whereas Nintendo gets to keep that profit margin because they're developing the games in-house. It's this like vertical integration of their company where they not only do the gaming consoles, they also develop the games. The, The caveat to that though is that or not the caveat, the flip side, it means Nintendo absorbs the risk for flops. Like if you have a really bad video game, in the Sony and Xbox model where they've got a lot of third-party developers, that game sucks. Like the risk is on the developer. If Nintendo has a game that sucks, like they get stuck with the losses of all the R&D that went into that project that didn't get recouped with a best-selling game. Mm. And, you know, just to dive and drill more into this, um, there's a chart I'm looking at at the moment that has the top 25 best-selling gaming franchises of all time. Of the top 25, Nintendo owns seven, and they own three of the top five, which which is incredible. Like they, that really shows the strength of their IP is they've got three, the top five highest-selling video game franchises of all time. I think when I look at the publishers as well on this list, Dan, the only publisher who also owns a console is Microsoft. So Minecraft is you know, maybe like 10 or 12 on this list and they're owned by Microsoft. But Microsoft didn't build and make Minecraft. That's not their IP. That's one they acquired. So even if I exclude Minecraft, because that's kind of an outlier in this, Nintendo are like the king when it comes to IP creation uh, in the gaming industry. And I did want to try and tie this back a little bit to the hardware because I think it's important for any of the listeners that don't play many video games to understand, I guess, what the consumer sentiment is towards these brands. And and I think I'd be representative of a lot of people when I view PlayStation and Xbox, they do have higher specs. So if you think of like a computer, they've just got more processing power. Uh, they've got better graphics, those sorts of things. And that does directly affect the types of games which are available in their library. Like they have visually beautiful, stunning graphics, like intensive games, multiplayer, et cetera, et cetera. Nintendo doesn't necessarily have that. Like they still can have beautiful games. But if you think of, if you picture Mario or Pokemon, they're sort of cartoonish. And it's very different from some of these other games which are trying to emulate, you know, real life, be really lifelike depictions of a war game or something like that. And so you immediately start to get a distinction between the types of games that these 
consoles are offering and therefore the customers which they're targeting. Yeah, it's a good point. I think I hadn't grouped games like this into the type of game, but there's like, there are games that really resemble real life and people play those mm. games like Call of Duty, yep. etc. Even the games that are kind of fringe real life games like Skyrim and things like that, they're, they're still very personified and um, based in kind of a human reality or type of realism. Whereas Nintendo games aren't, there's barely any realism associated with those games. Like maybe Mario is probably the closest thing to realism <laughs> where you've got a few humanoid characters, but like Mario's best friend is a dinosaur. Well, Luigi's brother, Albert, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess he's very easily forgotten, right, as a, <laughs> as a character. I think what, um, you know, there are probably two ways we can go about this, Dan. I think the first is we can start to dive deep into Nintendo's IP uh, and like the, the games in Nintendo. But before we do that, because I know this is probably a really meaty discussion, I actually want to talk about how Nintendo's performed as a business in the last couple of years because it's really a, um, turned its business around. So historically, Nintendo has been a really high performing business. It's grown incredibly well. Um, you know, my first experience was with the Nintendo 64, then the GameCube, then the Wii. And in that kind of like, um, 15 year time horizon in you know the 90s to 2010 nintendo was performing exceptionally well um but they released the wii u post the wii uh and that flopped you know declining revenue nintendo was kind of on the back foot a lot of people were questioning its future success and the nintendo switch really turned this business around in the past you know four years since 2018 Nintendo has been growing at about 17% year on year. And again, I hate using this benchmark, but well, I always use it. Salesforce business growing 20% year on year. Nintendo, you know, growing in the, around the same rate. So you, you can think of Nintendo as a pretty top performing tech business, given that, you know, it's growing at a similar rate to Salesforce. In the past year, though, Dan, Nintendo has grown 30%, more than 30%, 34% year on year you know, driven by an increase in their digital sales and their hardware sales. As a lot of people stayed home, a lot of people bought Switches. You know, I don't know about you, but a lot of my friends are playing Animal Crossing. You know, they... <laughs> like, Nintendo itself has performed incredibly well in the past couple of years as a result of the Nintendo Switch. And what really underpins the sale of the Nintendo Switch is the IP. And it's quite hard to distinguish between the performance of the hardware and the performance uh, in terms of, you know, uh, profitability standpoint and how the digital sales and software sales and gaming sales is hitting this business because Japanese reporting is kind of strange. Like reading a Japanese annual report was <laughs> was very different to reading an Australian annual report or an American 10K. And so I, I don't know how um, they break out their revenue because they don't disclose that. But they're generating around a 55% gross margin, about a 30% uh, EBIT margin, so you know, a relatively profitable business. Yeah, and I think if we look at each of the consoles, and I try and put them in a bit of a bucket, Albert. I think the way to view it is Sony is very much the hardware, like they are best in class. I mentioned at the top, they got about forty-five percent market share. It's really driven by them having superior hardware. Then, if you look to Xbox, they're sort of a cheaper alternative to, I think, PlayStation. Like there was a competition 
with the three Xbox 360 and you know the PlayStation 3, 4. But PlayStation, I think, has really come out ahead there. Where Xbox is transitioning to, which makes sense given that they're owned by Microsoft, is they're really leaning into cloud where it's like the online gaming experience, multiplayer, you know, have Call of Duty, you play with your friends, hundreds of players all in a game, that sort of thing, because they've got competency in that area. And then you move to Nintendo, and I think, as you say, Albert, their competency is their IP. Like, they've been a video game developer, not just a console maker, for decades. And this is, like, how you start to see differences between the three major players and i i I wanted to go back to a point you were talking about with like the the failure of the wii u it's a bit of a tangent but it it ties in with that last week's episode about lululemon and really thinking about how they've branded themselves as a premium product and all of this and that was the big weakness of the wii u like you have the playstation 3 going to the playstation 4 you've got the xbox 360 going to um Xbox X, was it, Albert? Yeah, Xbox no, Xbox, Xbox One. One yeah. Xbox One. Like, the brands very clearly differentiate when they're stepping up another level of console. The Wii went from the Wii to the Wii U, and consumers were confused. Like, they didn't really think of it as an upgrade. Um, and, it like, it just really, really flopped. And I think what Nintendo's done with the Switch is they've been very careful about how they market it and like positioning it in the marketplace because as you said it's the only real hybrid it's got the handheld and the plug-in functionality like it really just sits on its own as a brand and a a function Um, and I think that really helps Nintendo where it's going. Mm. I I really like what you said just before Dan I I didn't think about it this way but the competitive advantage of each of the three consoles are completely different like from uh, for the PlayStation their competitive advantage is they've got superior hardware and, and graphical performance for Xbox, it's like the social experience. And then for Nintendo, um, it's the IP. And like, no offense to Nintendo, but they have a terrible social experience and terrible online platform. But the other two, yeah, that's so clear to me. Nice. I like it. And, and it's funny after doing a bit of a deep dive, like it makes sense because when you think of Sony, they started with CD-ROMs. Like hardware, like the Walkman, all that hardware was very much in their DNA. And so that's how they've built that competency through. So, yeah, they've clearly got different strengths. Um, When we think of competition, though, as you say, Albert, it's not as clear as you only have one and not the other. When I made my purchasing decisions for a gaming console, it was either a PlayStation or an Xbox, and then I'd have the Nintendo product on the side. Like... It was the choice was between either PlayStation or Xbox because they overlapped so much. So much of their gaming libraries also overlap because they don't have that in-house um, capabilities as much as a Nintendo. And then because I really liked certain games on Nintendo, Zelda, Pokemon, Mario, that would be the side console. And the price doesn't hurt either. I think we've, I can't believe we've actually gone. Uh, almost 25 minutes into the pod and we haven't talked about the price difference between each of the products. Generally, the the Switch is, what, about $300 out Yeah, it's about $300, $360, depending on where you buy it. But yeah, in Australia, $360. And then the upgraded PlayStation 5 and the Xbox X. Close to $1,000. They're that much. Yeah, they yeah. 
Yeah, if you want to buy a PlayStation Five now in Australia, you got to wait a few months, or you can buy the like the digital version, so it doesn't allow you to use physical discs for I think six fifty, and then the hardware versions eight fifty to nine hundred, so close to a thousand dollars. The interesting thing about this, which has only come out recently uh, through the Epic Games versus Apple trial, um, which is you know quick summary. Uh, Fortnite, the developers of the Fortnite game, Epic, are suing Apple because they charge a fee for every Fortnite download through the App Store. And they're saying this is anti-competitive. It's been really interesting because as part of the court process, a lot of documents and information, which usually is held quite private, is released. And Xbox is um, part of the trial in a way where they're, they're taking the position of Epic. And one of the things that's come out is their sort of head of business development has has said we sell consoles at a loss so even though xbox consoles are more expensive than nintendo they make losses on them so the price difference doesn't make a difference to their bottom line Um, through that same court case this is from xbox they estimate that sony also makes a loss on all of their console sales but they estimate that nintendo makes a slight profit so like you can see these differences in business models, but they seem to be coming out fairly positive for Nintendo. Yeah, I'm not surprised that Nintendo make a profit on the hardware because it's not that great of hardware in, in terms of like the actual specifications of it, Dan, compared to PlayStation. Um, but this is probably a good point to kind of pivot now towards um, the games that Nintendo produce, that their IP. I think I just want to kind of umbrella this conversation. Is throughout the pod, we've analyzed a lot of different content businesses or entertainment businesses netflix you know big one and i really want to paint nintendo in the same light as it's not a gaming business it's not a hardware business it's an entertainment business and it competes for attention and in the last you know five to ten years as we've uh, analyzed these businesses we've seen a huge trend in these businesses vertically integrating to own ip but Nintendo started as a business that owned a lot of IP. So how do you think that structures and puts Nintendo uh, in terms of its competitive advantage ahead of Sony and Xbox? Well, it goes back to the point I was making about how each of them are making a loss on their console sales except for Nintendo. And that comes to scalability. Like you'd assume that the more consoles you sell, you're creating efficiencies in your manufacturing process so that you can get the margins up. And so for every sale, you get five bucks, 10 bucks, however much that you can have as profit. And then same on the game side of things. Once you've sold the expensive upfront console and you sell the game for you know $50 to $100 each, and for every game sold, you're getting a higher margin because the cost of making the games are less. Mm. So maybe you're getting $30 per game back as, as profit. Like that's... It's very simply how the business model you'd want it to be working. And what we've sort of overviewed is Sony and, and Xbox don't have that for the console itself, but Nintendo does. Okay, great. So if all things being equal, as they're scaling more sales, Nintendo gets more profits, but the other two mm. don't. Let's Let's flip to the software game side of things. As they sell more games... Well, it just means that Sony and Xbox give a larger cut to the developers. 
but Nintendo, they produce in-house, so they're getting just pure profit. So like all things being equal, like a sale being the sale, a sale for each, Nintendo should have higher margins than its competitors. It just seems to be a better business structure for them. So like I, I can't see the other businesses winning out except from like a very differentiated experience mm. or product offering. Mm. Yeah, so I mean similar to a lot of these other content businesses we've looked at, you know, like Spotify, Netflix, etc. Yeah, Sony and Xbox license out, you know, the right to be on Xbox or PlayStation. And then so they take a royalty fee of when a, a game gets sold. And so I, I hard to find the royalty fee, but they estimate it around 20 to 30%. So if a game sells for $100, then Microsoft and Sony receive $20 or um, you know, a similar clip. Nintendo, because they also manufacture games, whatever the margin is on that game, that's that's cash for them. They don't have they don't have to worry about royalty fees or the majority of that money going elsewhere. They get to have it. And as games become distributed digitally and people move away from buying physical discs and to um, you know, digital versions of games, then that just only increases the profitability that Nintendo get from each sale because they're no longer having to deal with the distribution and physical publishing of a game. Like once they've paid for the cost and the research and development it takes to make a game, everything else is just pure margin. And I think what adds to the genius of Nintendo's business, Stan, and this is why I love their IP, is Mario itself is not even new IP. Like (laughs) like Mario, Mario is not net new IP. Mario is like from... I don't know, the 70s, 80s, 90s. Pokemon is from the 90s. And Pokemon is their most storied, arguably most successful franchise. Like Pokemon permeates through childhoods of, you know, 30, 40-year-olds right now, but it's permeating through the childhoods of like 8, 10-year-olds right now as well. That's old IP that they just reuse. Like the formula is exactly the same. Nintendo doesn't have to invest in net new ip they're just reinventing the story of old ip which means they don't they don't have to test it with customers or determine if there's going to be market or product fit they've already got that and they're just squeezing the lemon out of it so dan this is i'm going to put this to you i think nintendo is positioned to be the next disney because of its ip you you ran this by me before you started recording, and I, I got to say I align on a lot of it. So I'm just gonna let you run. Tell us, Albert, why is Nintendo going to be the next Disney? Thank you, thank you. I'm happy to sit up on my soapbox and shout out to the town. So you know, when I look at the success of what Disney's done and their backlog of IP, I don't necessarily look at Disney as a, a content business, even though that's predominantly what they engage in. They're an IP business. They mass and hoard IP, you know, Marvel, Star Wars, you know, all the Pixar IP, license it out, create content with it, build theme parks with it. But they're they're just an IP business. And Nintendo is exactly the same. They've got incredibly storied IP. You know, Mario, Kirby, Donkey Kong, Pokemon, Zelda, you know, F1. Like, they've got really, really storied IP that people resonate with. And they've also got incredibly niche IP that people resonate with. And that manifests through gaming and then through the hardware that they build 
to enable that IP. But they've also started to move into mobile gaming. And so less about manufacturing a, a console and then games to sell that console, but you know, leveraging hardware through mobiles that people have already bought to increase their revenue. They're also moving into theme parks, which, you know, very similar to Disney theme parks. I think I, I want to compare Nintendo and, and analyze it through the lens of an IP business. And the closest comparison for me is Disney. Yeah, I, mean, I aligned a lot with what you were saying, because when I, when I first started tackling Nintendo from our fresh capital analysis sort of perspective, I very much viewed it as what differentiates itself from Sony and from Microsoft through its Xbox. It's just the IP. It's like I resonate very much with the characters, the gaming titles mm. that, that I grew up with. And that to me is the limiting factor as well because it's not a secret that a large cohort of their consumers, of Nintendo's consumers, are people of our age group and a little bit older, Albert. It's the, you either have the very young children who are currently playing those games for the first time, mm. or you have the nostalgia seekers. Like people like me and, and you who are playing games because they remind us of our childhood. Mm. And what better way to do that than to play the latest title of that game you did play yeah. in your childhood? Yeah. The limiting factor of that is there's a middle there of teens um, to sort of university students who might have skipped the Nintendo generation, like they might have actually come through during that Wii U spot where like people just weren't playing the lost Nintendo generation, games. <laughs> the lost years. Um, and the challenge then is for them is, is how does Nintendo capture that market or the next generation that's coming through in a world where they're competing with mobile phones, where there's games there, there's games on iPads, like it's just going to be a crowded marketplace like maybe it's bigger picture albert but like do you see console gaming as an industry still being a thing and if not then where's nintendo go like where do they yeah live? absolutely so i actually think that traditional sitting at your in your lounge room plugging your console into your tv i think that's dead i think nintendo is killing that and i think mobile gaming is killing that because people don't want to game and sit down. People game and, again, you know, when people consume content and entertainment, they do it in all sorts of ways. But people often do multiple things at once. Like people want to game and watch TV or, or you know, game and have something playing in the radio or podcast. Like I play my Switch. <laughs> playing on the radio album. How old are you? I play my Switch like for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Um, a day, or if that. But sometimes when I'm when I decide to play for long periods of time, I will put on a podcast and listen to it as I'm playing it. And so, I absolutely think there is going to be a place for Nintendo as the world moves towards mobile gaming, and they see that as well, which is why they've created the Switch to make it a handheld console first, and a traditional console second. I think this is where I disagree with you, actually. Um, like, I don't think it was necessarily a first principles choice for them to go into the Wii, which was the first sort of handheld console motion control, and now doubling down as it goes into the Switch. I think they were really pushed there by Sony B 
being a market leader and just like really sort of pushing them out. And you could see that because they've had some failed products over the years where they, they tried to have higher spec models and they just lost out. So I think they've learned over time by force, by market competition, where they play. And for the reasons which I've said, I like Nintendo against PlayStation and Xbox, like I think they got a very differentiated product from them, is also my cause for concern. Because when I think of the bubbly cartoon characters, the low-spec gaming, what does that remind me of? It reminds me of, you know, what the games you play on a phone. Like, I know you were saying, like, you think the the sit-down experience is dead. I don't really agree because of the success of your Fortnites, of your Riot games, like your computer games. That's definitely a cohort of serious gamers. But the reason why they're serious is because they like high-spec, like very intensive games, uh, which Nintendo is not. And so as things start to turn, like I see Nintendo competing with the phone generation of games while PlayStation and Xbox are going to start competing with the Fortnites, the Riot games, that sector. And in some ways, I think Nintendo gets the harder one to face. Like facing off against Apple and like everyone having a handheld device is going to be really hard. It's not not a problem though, because that's a bigger market size. Like if you're choosing to play in a market size where it's mobile gaming and mobile first, arguably that's a lot bigger than you know, the consumers who are sitting on their couch and dedicating an entire day to play a video game. It is, but Apple at the moment has a device you can use as a phone and as a game. Nintendo doesn't have a product anywhere near ready to be a phone as well as a game. But that that's not a problem because I don't think Nintendo also want to be a phone because Nintendo mobile games have been highly successful and they've leveraged all their existing IP in order to do that. Like in the last financial year, Pokemon Go made a billion dollars. Pokemon Go is a unicorn business. And and that's not even a business that Nintendo owns wholly. They, they own it through a partnership with one of their investments in the antic. And so I think Nintendo are really well positioned to win mobile gaming because they've got the experience and they've got the IP to create really good, strong, addictive games. Like the fact that Pokemon Go is still going so strong after launch is a tell to how successful Pokemon is as a franchise and how much people resonate with that. I'm I'm disagreeing. I think it's going to be really tough for them. Um, I guess the way I describe them at the top, that they are sort of like a niche, like I really love them because they're niche, is also why I'm checking myself when I, think about their growth trajectory because if you're a niche there's only so big you can grow like like that's the point of being niche and as you get bigger and you start trying to branch out into other things you lose that branding what made you successful and you could potentially just go completely bust like today i just posted if anyone is not following us on instagram or linkedin check it out you know i posted the the story of what happened to reebok and the story of reebok is you know, they were great in the uh, aerobics industry and then they started to branch out into basketball, into football, into hockey and their brand just died. Like it just withered on the vine because they spread themselves too thin. 
that's that's the issue I see for Nintendo. Is like I think, as you say, they got really successful IP, but if they don't stay in their lane, there's some competitors out there that will will come take their their market share real quick. Which I think Nintendo do this in a really well structured way, though, in that they make minority or major investments in these companies. Like they're not out there uh, pushing the Nintendo brand and starting a completely new business unit in order to capture mobile. Like, Pokemon Go is a partnership with Niantic, which they have a minority investment in, and Niantic was spent out of Google. So if you pitched that and said, hey, there's a billion-dollar mobile gaming business that is revolutionizing augmented reality, people would be like, that's incredible. Like, how this business is a billion-dollar business through augmented reality gaming. People talk about AR gaming as, like, the next thing. Nintendo's done that. Like Nintendo has created that in five years, since 2016, five years. That's incredible. I think Nintendo can continue to leverage that and succeed in mobile gaming. So I'm pretty bullish on Nintendo because they're doing it in the right way. And, you know, I'm conscious that we're wrapping up, but as we're talking about minority investments, like Nintendo have some really, really strange minority investments. Like they have a 10% stake in the Seattle Mariners, the baseball team. Super strange. Super strange. (laughs) It suggests to me a lack of focus, perhaps, Albert. (laughs) Uh, But, um, yeah, as we finish up, I did want to hit on um, two points, just generally about Nintendo's growth prospects. One is digital sales. Um, So when we're talking about things being dead in terms of consoles, one thing that's soon to be dead is the idea of you go into a physical store, you buy a disc or some sort of hardware which has the game on it, and you take it home. Increasingly, it's just you download the game straight away from the cloud onto your console, and you're good to play. Um, Nintendo set a new record of about 48 49% of its downloads, or sorry, of its uh, gaming sales being downloads uh, in the last quarter. So they're clearly trending in that direction and that can only mean good things for their profit margins. Um, The other thing to mention about growth is I've been hearing this in the news and it hasn't been until this pod where I've dived into it. There's a global software chip um, Mm. shortage Mm. and that's born out of a few things. Uh, One is with COVID, a lot of car sales um, shipments got sort of put on hold and that messed up the supply chain where, okay, we're going to stop creating all these chips to be used in cars. And then suddenly COVID wasn't so bad. So can we start ramping it up again? And the, the factory sort of freaked out and there's been some issues there. The other is um, the US imposed some um, restrictions on technology exports to China, which has affected uh, Taiwan and South Korea and, and China production of these um, chips. In short, there's a bit of a shortage, um, which means it's harder for these gaming console makers like Sony, like Nintendo, to meet the demand that's there because of COVID-19 and everyone being at home. So you could expect their sales over the next year or so to just be limited because they can't produce as many consoles. It's not a great thing. Yeah, but it's it probably impacts their competitors more than Nintendo. As in, I think anyone who would probably own a Switch probably owns one by now, given that they were released in 2017. Unless you're really holding out for like the high-end model that only just got released. 
So I don't. Well, well, you're right because Sony and Xbox launched their new product what last mm. year, so they really want to start ramping now. Whereas Nintendo's at the end of its product cycle, like they don't need to be selling huge amounts of consoles at this part of this. Exactly. Yeah. So you're absolutely exactly. Right. And you know, we talked about how cyclical um, console sales is. Like it's also cyclical on a macro on a micro level. Sorry, when you know my hypothesis is the majority of console sales would be you know, in Christmas period or around the middle of the year during the major breaks, like summer break, mm-hmm. winter break, Christmas. And so, you know, we're in August now, upcoming, there's still plenty of time for Nintendo to start manufacturing things in the next couple of years or next couple of months, sorry. But Sony, Sony is in a really hard position because they literally cannot manufacture or meet the demand for their consoles. And so if these people want a console, like maybe they turn to Nintendo, maybe they turn to PC gaming, but I think Sony and Xbox are in a hard position because of the chip shortage. All right, Albert, what's your final verdict? I think Nintendo to me is an IP business. And if I compare it to other IP businesses like Disney, I think Nintendo can be really successful. It just depends on what playbook they follow. Are they going to follow the playbook of Disney and just pump out a lot of content i don't necessarily think so because they've been a lot more conservative with the amount of content they produce but i think where nintendo is going is that playbook theme parks content potentially movies we'll see bullish on nintendo dan i'm gonna give a cautiously optimistic on nintendo and i I agree with you on most of your points like i think They're a good player in an industry which uh, has got some competition, but I think Xbox is probably the low-hanging fruit of that big three. Um, Nintendo's got a very differentiated product, really strong IP that will see it through. And I always like tailwinds, like the idea that everyone is going into lockdown, starting to increase the amount of people who play games and want to socialize through games can only mean more people are trying to you know, purchase things like a Nintendo Switch. So I think, you know, the signs are there that they're going to continue into the future. The reason I'm I'm cautiously optimistic is looking at their share price, they've been pretty bumpy actually over the last several years, like big upswings and also some big downswings, which I think reflects what we've been saying about this industry being particularly cyclical. And so I just suggest to any of uh, our listeners who are thinking of investing to just like, do a bit of research, make sure you're hitting the right timing on this cycle of which, you know, maybe at the end of the product stream for um, the switch is sort of a down period, which is, is fine to get in on a down period, but just know it's going to be a longer term investment um, if that's the case. So yeah, cautiously optimistic. Nice, Dan. Nice. I might, I might wrap it up and play a bit of my switch now. <laughs> All right, Albert, let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to Fresh Capital, a podcast about companies and investing told in a refreshingly simple way. I called out in the episode, we do have social media pages up and running with the thanks to some of our interns who've been working hard over the last month or so to get us um, up to speed. It's not just repeating what we do on the podcast. As I mentioned, we've got a really interesting story of how Reebok sort of rose and fell and tied that into a lesson which we can all learn as investors. So check it out, follow, like, subscribe, you know the drill. 
uh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how companies operate and how investing works. Just a reminder, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Fresh Capital are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any opinions expressed in the show are not recommendations or advice. Please consult a licensed financial professional before you jump in. As always, we look forward to seeing you next week. See ya.